We are not here at 11FS headquarters because it's the Christmas break. So we're bringing you a Christmas special, an interview special. Uh, and Colin G. Platt, GSAS himself, spoke to the one and only Tim Swanson about 2017. What happened and a year in review. Colin, can I lead you and Tim to an interview? So I'm here with Tim Swanson, the founder of Post Oak Labs and XR3 employee, as as well as world round world renowned commentator for everything that is cryptocurrency and blockchain. Thanks for coming on, Tim. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Tim, you and I are having a, a few different discussions about what's been going on in the industry and uh, kind of what's happened in 2017, 2018. You put out a, a couple of interesting blogs about uh, cryptocurrencies, um, but you've also talked a lot and you had a lot of experience within the permission blockchain or DLT world. Can you tell us kind of briefly what do you think is happening in the industry, uh, specifically within enterprise type stuff uh, with blockchain, and then a little bit about what happens in the cryptocurrency world? What are the startups out there that people are looking at? What's interesting? Sure, and yeah, for the listeners that have been just diving into this the last month or so, if you're not familiar with the, this quote unquote blockchain related ecosystem, it's really bifurcated into two distinct groups. You have those working on enterprise or institutional related. Um, activities, and that's typically the automation of, of infrastructure, IT infrastructure. Um, and there's about a dozen or so vendors um, in, in that space. Uh, if you want to call it even space, it's still very small. Um, and just so I could, you know, I'll rattle off some names. Again, I'm not endorsing companies. I'm just saying these are the players that, that are worth looking at in, in three specific cities. And obviously, there's, there's more companies outside of these cities but I just wanted to point out those uh, for, for people looking to do homework over the holiday break. Uh, so let's start with um, London. Um, I would say Settle, S-E-T-L.io, Cobalt DL, uh, Clear, Clearmatics, and uh, Rise Financial would be four out there. And full disclosure, I, I am an advisor to Clearmatics. Um, in New York, I would say that uh, Symbiont, Axoni, uh, DAH, or Digital Asset, uh, in R3 um, are four companies worth looking into. And again, full disclosure, I'm an advisor to R3 still. And uh, then in in San Francisco, uh, since everyone likes talking about the West Coast, um, I would put uh, Pure Nova, um, also include uh, Chain, although my understanding is they are likely moving away from enterprise to, to look at some other uh, market segments. And then Ripple also has a series or a set of products uh, focused on enterprise institutional use. So that's 11. The 12th company actually is, is Consensus uh, in its subsidiary called Consensus Enterprise. Uh, they are uh, not just based in New York. They have a, you know, their headquarters basically in Brooklyn, but they're, they're global. They have operations uh, around the world, as do some of these other companies as well. Um, but if, if, you, yeah, if you look at headcount um, of those 12 entities, you're maybe just under 1,000 people altogether. Um, Collectively, they've raised maybe ish $450 million or so. So you, even though you've had a lot of uh, interest and in, in hype in the enterprise side of things over the last couple of years, you haven't seen the amount of investment at this stage uh, that maybe one would expect. And, and part of that's because of maturity. You, know, we, you and I could probably spend all day talking about the different platforms that these vendors are, are building. Um, and it wasn't until just you know basically a couple months ago that um, most of these platforms hit or at least uh, self, <laughs> self-certified self that they're, they're version 1.0 uh, immature. In fact, um, Gideon Greenspan has a new article out today um, from, from Coindesk talking about where did all the private blockchains go. Uh, 
Gideon is the CEO of a company called Coin Sciences based in Israel. You know, I, I could include them in this, and, and I should, but again, I was just talking about the, the three cities, uh, the three large cities. Uh, so he's based in Israel. They have a company that's uh, building a product called MultiChain, um, and it's, I guess, the direct competitor in terms of uh, as a vendor would maybe be something like Chain because they both were based off of Bitcoin. Uh, and anyways, uh, he, he made a good point that you know in that article that it's it's been really tough uh, and difficult for uh, you know, vendors to be able to walk the walk. Um, you know, it's really easy to go on stage and and make a lot of noise about how. Uh, market operators will be removed from the entire, you know, chain of, of custody or chain of transactions um, in, in the financial markets today. But to, to be able to actually do that, assuming that that's a good thing or, or legal thing to do, um, trying to actually do that in practice is, is much more difficult than than most uh, vendors probably anticipated. So uh, I'll pause there before we go into the cryptocurrency world. Did you have any any follow ups on that point? Yeah, no, you said a couple of really interesting things in there. Um, so the the first is kind of the, the that last point you made, which is um, Gideon talked about uh, you know what's happened with all this, and this is something we noted in the show a few weeks ago um, that a lot of a lot of that may just be people putting their nose down to the grindstone and trying to get to work. Uh, we saw the fantastic announcement uh, from Bly the Masters uh, about a week ago, uh, or sorry, two weeks ago. Uh, that uh, they're they're going to go ahead and build something with digital asset. We also heard something in early December uh, with David Rudder coming out saying 2018 is the year of production. It seemed like uh, 2016 was was the year that, of the noise, uh, really. So everybody was talking about raising money and what they were going to do. And, and when it really comes down to it, a lot of the things that these companies are building aren't aren't scary per se. Um, they may change things, and that may result in some people losing their jobs or needing needing to move around in what they do. Um, but we're not fundamentally talking in enterprise about whole scale removing of uh, intermediaries, which uh, runs kind of uh, counterintuitively to uh, a lot of the notions that uh, cryptocurrency people who are promoting things like Bitcoin and Ethereum talk about. How is it that enterprise blockchains come to really be? how to become more efficient rather than how do we completely disrupt, uh, for lack of a better word, these intermediaries? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned that because I remember uh, distinctly in 2015 uh, talking to various people, including you know, Robert Sams over Clearmatics, obviously the R3 team, and, and, and several other vendors that are, that are still around uh, that have managed to you know, wither this, this, this uh, noise storm, if you will. Um, and... Really, you had a spectrum uh, then, as you do today, of, of views in which you some some proponents said, "Hey, uh, we are going to not only use this, these tools to automate and improve existing infrastructure, but we will remove intermediaries, um, complete groups of intermediaries." And I believe again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I guess Robert Sam's uh, view would would be most aligned with that. Um, and but but even if that's kind of what your long term at least prediction or view may be, um, in the short run, institutions, uh, including something like a clearinghouse, or CCP or something like that, is not going to disappear simply because of legal reasons for, uh, for alone. Like you, in order to uh, hold, <laughs> only certain entities can hold securities, only certain entities can uh, do actual settlement of cash. So if, if you're a central bank or if you're a CSD, those those are your um, I don't want to say babies, but that's that's what you will do for the foreseeable future, irrespective of whether or not there's technology that can can do those functions and remove you. So again, I I don't want to say 
the uh, I, I like to think I'm, I'm fairly neutral in, in the sense that I'm, I'm not saying what will happen. I'm saying that you have these different different views, and you have those who are who are trying to be pragmatic uh, in their approaches, and those are the ones who basically survived to this stage because they've been able to uh, effectively work with regulated institutions that that have those um, you know custody relationships uh, or services themselves. That aren't going to disappear. So, if you're a, a two-man startup here in the, in the Bay Area, I'm, and I'm based in San Jose, if you think that you could build infrastructure to, or FMI, financial market infrastructure, to to replace uh, these institutions, maybe it could from a technical standpoint, but from a relationship standpoint, from a legal standpoint, from all all these different uh, all these different stakeholders that you need to you need to talk to before you do that, uh, most are probably too late to that game. And that's not to I don't want to dissuade people. Listening to this, that they shouldn't be entrepreneurs trying to improve or, or even replace existing infrastructure. But it's 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 a it's a game of of, of snails. <laughs> it's not something that that goes by very quickly on purpose because you don't want to replace infrastructure that hasn't been tested uh, with experimental stuff overnight. Otherwise, it could break, and you have you know up, upwards to, to several trillion dollars. Just to give a, a figure, um, the Federal Reserve uh, published a paper last year, last December on distributed ledger technology. And they said that there's in the U.S. alone, there's 600 million uh, payment clearing and settlement transactions worth around $11 trillion. So, uh, and that's in a given day. Uh, so disrupting that, as people like to say in the barrier, means something different than, you know, accidentally breaking. If, if you break that, you end up with lawsuits, people end up uh, in poverty potentially because their life savings are destroyed. So, um, you know, there, there's a very meticulous approach that these vendors have had to, to go through. They can't just uh, break break things fast and ask for forgiveness, like uh, Uber and these other other kind of companies out here have tried to do. Um, they they truly have to work hand in hand with uh, regulators themselves and and, and those that. Uh, they work with such as regulated financial institutions. And, and I think that's a really interesting point that a lot of people kind of glance over. I mean, the, the model of Silicon Valley of, you know, running and breaking breaking things is is okay when it's, you know, you might lose all the data in your app or you might not be able to order a taxi today. But it's, it's different if you're talking about your grandmother's life savings or you're talking about your company's ability to pay pay its staff every, every month. Um, the stakes are very high here and we need to think about how we do these and a lot of a lot of intermediaries in the financial industry exist for a good reason and aren't just a cost on society. Um, they actually provide a lot of beneficial services. Now, um, one one thing that I'm really curious about is um, having worked in this um, in a variety of different companies and advised companies on this permission blockchains. Um, we know they're not for disruption. They obviously aren't cryptocurrencies in themselves. What is it that they do well, and why are we interested in them? Why can't we just use a regular old database? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. So I wrote a paper uh, for the listeners uh, that are interested. I wrote a paper over two and a half years ago called Consensus as a Service, and it basically popularized the term permissioned blockchain. Uh, that term actually came out uh, the month before, so I wrote that paper April uh, 2015. Uh, Robert Sams is actually the guy who coined the term permission blockchain. He gave a presentation, I believe, it an event, a meetup in, in London, March uh, 2015. Um, and the idea is this, Richard Brown does a really good job articulating um, this. In fact, I, I would say the CTOs of most of these vendors typically do a pretty good job articulating why why there's a need for these, these platforms, if you will. The bottom line is this, uh, from a political uh, and security standpoint, uh, most banks would not feel comfortable with allowing one entity or a bank, uh, such as a competitor of theirs, uh, to run 
that database in which all their information uh, is stored or managed or operates on, on top of. So as a result, you have um, well, there's a lot of reasons why you have the current market structure the way it is. But fundamentally, uh, if banks aren't going to allow one specific bank to run everything, uh, in, in the current uh, infrastructure looks the way it does today, how can you, in the meantime, uh, before <laughs> this this nirvana world that everyone's always speaking about, how, how do you get uh, to to a stage in, in which you could still use the uh, pieces of this technology in a very practical way? So that's to say that if you could create a shared ledger between institutions, then they could have the optics uh, and the the transparency that they all have been talking about the last couple of years, but without having to necessarily depend on either uh, one entity to run it all. So uh, you know, again, Richard Brown's posted a number of articles on this on his website, gendel.me. And for those who are very skeptical of quote unquote permission chains, you can be as skeptical as you want. Bottom line is if there's a way to automate and create better transparency and uh, visibility into transactions and, and, and how the entire flow of processing takes place, banks will spend the money to, to get that. They'll, they'll spend a billion dollars to save $2 billion or something like that. Um, and, and we could talk about numbers all day long, the post-trade world. But if you guys are interested in, in, in seeing that sketched out in, in kind of the, the post-trade world, I also recommend looking at some of the things that Axoni has been talking about, or at least that they've been actually doing. Um, I'd say that they've been very quiet overall, but they've probably been doing quite a bit more work than if you look at 2015 for certain uh, a lot of the people putting out press releases uh, that, that haven't been able to actually build out the infrastructure. So uh, the short answer is anyone that is building databases at large scales is also looking at the, or, or trying to build uh, out utility on using this technology. Uh, SAP, Oracle, IBM, Microsoft, all the large enterprises have teams dedicated to, to working on this. Uh, all the large cloud providers like Amazon and Microsoft also have teams dedicated to this. Uh, at the end of the day, maybe this all be, this becomes or, or falls under the database category. Uh, and I'm not religious about the actual terminology. It enables companies and especially regulated institutions to be able to continue to exist in the, the current world, provide better optics. And again, that's a really, <laughs> really, really short uh, way of trying to describe what someone like Richard or, or, or Robert uh, have done real well in the past on the show. No, and I, I would encourage anybody that's, that's curious and trying to understand that to go uh, read what Robert and Richard uh, and what you put out about that. Uh, I guess what you said begs one question to me is, um, do you see enterprise blockchain being kind of the end or is it a means to an end? Uh, what I mean there is, are, are people talking about moving into DLT for uh, for the next 10 to 20 years and eventually they'll, they'll move on to permissionless, like a cryptocurrency type blockchain? Or is this... That's the, the holy grail is the DLT, the permission blockchain itself. Um, I I'd like to say both in the sense that um, a lot of the reasons people are are, are building uh, this type of tech isn't because they don't want to you know experiment with something that's like a cryptocurrency, assuming that that's desirable. But it, it's really because of the legal and political, uh, I guess you could say, containerization that these. Uh, enterprises operate under. So like I remember reading William Mugier's book a couple of years ago, and he had this diagram on one of the pages in the middle of the book, which showed how constrained thinking that financial institutions had because they're playing around with permission blockchains instead of you know, working around in the cryptocurrency world. But the problem is, is they, they, if from a settlement perspective alone, uh, they need settlement finality and you can't get settlement finality uh, in 
under existing you know proof of work based cryptocurrencies it's it's always going to be probabilistic um and that's not good enough for institutions that are legal and, and from a regulatory standpoint have to have definitive uh, settlement finality so i mean if you can we break that down really quickly for for the listeners that don't don't know what that means? So settlement finality is um, effectively if I were to send you something at this given point because we passed this step, that thing I handed you is no longer mine and it's now yours. And when we're dealing with large sums of money that's moving very quickly around the globe, that you know split second and that that step uh, of finality is very important because um, if I'm moving money every second of the day, if at some point I go bankrupt. Uh, you want to make sure that money's in your account and I can't uh, take it back. Exactly. Blockchains, uh, permissionless blockchains can't necessarily promise this because um, even if it is a, a, a theoretically very small risk, um, the fact that um, your transaction doesn't settle or confirm into a block or maybe that block's overridden at some point in the future uh, leaves that up, uh, up in the air. So we can't say at this given point in time, there is a definitive, this thing has passed from my hand to your hand. Yeah, that's that, that's, that's a great way to describing it. And, and in fact, uh, some of my clients right now, so again, I have this advisory company and about half of the clients are doing enterprise-related stuff, but the other half are doing cryptocurrency-related stuff. Either they're you know buying, selling, trading, they're interacting somehow with existing cryptocurrencies or they're they're working and building some, some of their own. And, and one of the clients uh, right now uh, that I'm working with is a, is a regulated institution in the UK and they um, uh, have a whole fork policy in, 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 their, in their documents because of all the different forks that have taken place uh, in the past year. I remember uh, up until the Ethereum uh, you know, hard fork last year, you, know, you had a lot of people saying, oh, forks will never happen because there's only the, the minority chain will be removed. But what, what happens, and obviously that's empirically untrue, we've seen Ethereum Classic continue, Bitcoin Cash, and all the different Bitcoin you know, airdrops in the last couple months. But the uh, if you had a you know a derivative or some, some kind of some kind of financial instrument instrument that matures after 30 years and ends up on a minority chain what happens to the financial performance of that do you have to reissue it do you have to cancel that um, so these aren't like s- simple like you know, hand wavy issues that the the, the cryptocurrency community has has resolved in fact they're, they're still having issues look at the the parity you know wallet issues in which you have over 100 million dollars stuck on a stuck on a contract that was killed by some random guy on the internet. So in, in, where's the accountability for if, if you had a billion, a trillion dollars worth of assets that were put on a contract that ends up being killed by some random unaccountable guy on the internet, um, who's, wh- how does legal recourse take place? So again, we could spend all episode talking about the enterprise side and, and why it's, it's been so slow to get to where it's at um, you know, relative to the expectations that were promised a couple of years ago. But um, you know, it, it's it's not an easy process. It, you have to do the requirements gathering, um, and then eventually you have to build an ecosystem of independent developers. Uh, otherwise, you'd just be vendor dependent on on one guy, one group of people. And maybe they could do that, but uh, it, it seems like uh, you know you, ecosystems, just like in the regular software world, will will de- decide who wins in this world too. Maybe obviously there'll be multiple different ones, but uh, at the same time. Uh, if you if you have to rebuild all the applications yourself with a team of like twenty people, you're just not going to be able to do that. There's so many different types of financial applications out there. No, and and I think the other thing in there is um, uh, a lot of the the ways that you build these things are, are very new and very different from something else, and the stakes are are much higher. I was talking to the company uh, recently that was saying, you know, inside of banks, uh, they're very used to building everything in house. Well, um, in a bank, if if you get a risk model wrong. 
yes, you may you know accidentally send a message that you didn't want to send. Um, most likely, that won't cause an issue. Maybe that could make a trader do a, uh, make a wrong decision. But there's still some uh, stop gaps in between there. Um, but if if you all of a sudden lose your private keys because you've coded something wrong, uh, you could potentially lose millions, if not billions, of dollars inside of these things. So. Uh, it, it's very scary on uh, thinking about trying to recreate these with very small teams. And it, it as you say, um, until you kind of have an adoption and developer community, it's going to be very hard, in my opinion, to uh, see enterprises move into this technology in any really meaningful way outside of a, a few little spots here and there. Sure. And, and I guess we can kind of segue into, you know, the cryptocurrency side at this at this stage, because you're talking about private key management and stuff. But before I get to that, though, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, some people may comment saying, hey, there's already existing market operators that everyone already trusts to to service that counterparty. So CLS, uh, you know, the, the continuous link settlement uh, provides FX for you know, dozens of commercial banks. Um, you obviously have all the different clearinghouses, uh, CSDs, central banks themselves. Uh, one argument is why can't they just why don't they just run? Um, the system in which everyone else trusts and, and does it. They do, and, and maybe in fact they do become the the operators of of these types of you know quote unquote blockchain networks. Uh, that's obviously all speculation. I I, I can't you know guess about you know, whether or not these these entities will be replaced or will uh, change change their own operating model. Uh, but uh, you know that's something that obviously you've spent a lot of time looking at with the uh, depactum. Um, but uh, to the point where people say, hey, why don't why don't how is this any different than a database? Uh, at the end of the day, I, I, I don't think that we should you know, spend time arguing about, you know, in a religious way, about what the what the actual term is, if it is a database or not. Uh, bottom line is who who operates and who has optics into it, and who has control of those uh, keys and the ability to, to reorganize uh, transactions and so forth. So I, I think that the utility that comes from that is, is very much separate. Uh, discussion versus the, the terminology that everyone likes to to spend time on tw- Twitter yelling about, which then ties again into the cryptocurrency world. But yeah, did you have any thoughts? I mean, since you since you actually, if, if we might might turning the table onto you, what's your perspective on the intermediaries? If, if we have time for that, uh, I mean, I think um, uh, in my opinion, right now the way I like to break it down is to talk about um, when when. E-commerce first started moving from uh, what we like to call bricks and mortar before when we had great buzzwords into virtual storefronts. And I think that we're going to see something similar with intermediaries where right now a company like the CME, which is in the news, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, runs their front-end platform that uh, clients can plug into. They run the back-end. They run a lot of technology to effectively offer a few services and solutions to their clients Um, in the future. You might be able to outsource that out to either syndicate of companies that work together, offering exchange and clearinghouse products, um, or to potentially uh, these open blockchains, uh, the cryptocurrency type networks. You know, I, I don't necessarily have a time frame on that, and I don't know whether you're going to go all the way out to the cryptocurrency network. But I think it is an interesting idea where you say, you know, for the the same way that stores don't need to go out and uh, rent or buy a building and uh, house everything on a very expensive street in New York. They can just have it in a warehouse someplace in New Jersey or in Milton Keynes in the UK uh, that sells to clients and delivers straight to their home through infrastructure like the post office. Uh, they don't need to operate all these things themselves and deliver things themselves. They can use things that are already there. Yeah. And speaking of that, and I know that we're probably going to be running short on time here in a bit, but 
uh, I wanted to plug a paper that you actually co-authored um, a few months ago. Is called the, the title is Implementing Derivatives Clearing on Distributed Ledger Technology Platforms, and, and you co-authored it with uh, Peter Soka out in Hungary and one of my favorite guys, Massimo Marini, out in Italy. Uh, and again, we don't obviously have time to dive into it, but I want to make a plug in for 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 Colin for having uh, done some real thought leadership on how you how you can use this technology with existing intermediaries. Uh, and again, you can find that for free. R three has a, a website r three dot com slash research. I was head of the the, the market research team and, and worked a lot with uh, a number of these papers um, that I'm really proud that, that that exist out there. I wish there was more entities uh, <laughs> publishing publishing this material on a regular cadence, but. Um, I, I think it's uh, time to just jump quickly back into the, the cryptocurrency side, if, if we have time for that. Um, is there a specific well, area? We started that- talking about religion and, and faith on how these things work <laughs> and, and the probability of uh, immutability actually being immutable. Well, what are you seeing? What are the trends uh, 2017 Bitcoin? Obviously, we talk a lot about the price, but the price is only one small price kind of not important factor. Um, we've seen headline news like uh, the CME and SIBO and Chicago big exchanges offering futures on Bitcoin. A lot of banks have, have strong feelings, generally negative towards Bitcoin. What are you, what are you seeing uh, in Bitcoin and Ethereum? What's changed? What's happening? What's interesting? Yeah, so I, I guess the takeaway for me this year is that there's no point in building anything. You should just buy coins, hold them, and you know sit there on Twitter saying how everyone else should buy them. Uh, so that way other people come in and, <laughs> and prop up the price and, and, and make it go even higher. I, I Honestly, if, if, you, if you look at investors, if you were an investor that, that invested in anything that wasn't a exchange or entity that did touch coins and, and traded them, you probably did not see a return on investment that was on par with you know, Bitcoin or, or, or Ether or any of these cryptocurrencies. And that's not to make fun of or say that you know everyone's – you know that there's uh, – tulip mania that's going to blow up or something like that. I, I don't think I've ever would want to go on the record saying something like that. Uh, but there is a mania for sure taking place. And we see that in um, the, the, the coin prices. So I, I don't see why that would necessarily stop at this stage. It's become its own, you know, self-propelled uh, multi-level marketing entity. Uh, and, I, you know, people calling it Ponzi's, that's not quite – you can't call it a Ponzi because there's no one entity directing it. Well, I, I guess my, my issue on Ponzi here, just to jump in, I, I, I think it, it is um, – you're taking away a lot of credit from Charles Ponzi and what he wrote uh, or what he what he built. Um, it's, I mean, look, at the end of the day, Bitcoin and all these other cryptocurrencies uh, at their base are a free of payment system, essentially meaning there's only one leg. I send you something, you receive it, end of the, end of the story. Now, if there's a second thing that happens on the other side, uh, we can talk about that. What a Ponzi does is it directs money um, from somebody else to directly pay it off somebody else. So imagine we have a tube, I push a dollar bill in one side and it comes out the other side. Now, uh, in, in Bitcoin, I have a Bitcoin that I get somehow for a low price, let's call it a dollar. I hold on to it and at some, pri- at some point in the future, I find you and you say, hey, I'm willing to buy that Bitcoin for $10 or $100 or $18,000. Um, the fact that you want to pay me more for something, well, that that's your own prerogative. That's the market's free hand, I guess. Uh, and I understand that you know there may be things, market abuse like pump and dump and uh, very unsavory scams happening out there. And there are, in fact, Ponzi's involved uh, around Bitcoin that are using Bitcoin. But Bitcoin itself, in my mind, cannot be a Ponzi. It, it could be a whole lot of horrible bad words, but in itself, it, it would not ever meet the definition of a Ponzi. It's very different. Much like gold. <laughs> yeah, sure. 
Yeah, sure. I think I think Preston Preston Byrne called it a was it a Nakamoto scheme or something like that, and he wrote an article like two weeks ago or something like that on it. So, um, well, I mean, the the one the one takeaway aside from you know just buying coins, holding and, and just shilling for them on on social media that I had is that there's fewer there's less data available today on actual usage than there was say two years ago. I I, I frequently get asked Tim, why don't you write more posts on data? Uh, if people are interested, I have a website called ofnumbers.com in which I, I used to do that. But there's actually, for example, Coinbase removed uh, their transactional information uh, as did several other websites. Um, and maybe that's because they just want to keep competitors from understanding that. But I think it's it's largely because people don't actually you know spend these things. They just sit there and hoard it. And that's, that's fine. It's a rational thing to do. I fully understand. Uh, but I think the other the other issue, and I have a, a draft of an article that I might be publishing soon on this, is the the is for all the the bluster that the cryptocurrency world has had towards the traditional financial system, it is fully dependent on it for liquidity and for pricing. Um, and and the, the best example of this is with miners. Uh, miners in any kind of proof of work network uh, depend on um, basically the foreign currency that they're domiciled in to to liquidate into in order to pay their bills because there is no circular flow of income in you know whatever that cryptocurrency that they're mining like the the utility company does not accept or typically does not accept a cryptocurrency to pay the bills the the wages of the employees may the, the, the employees may not accept wages denominated in that cryptocurrency so may to my uh, taxes um and the machines themselves and so forth so like maybe at some stage that does happen but i would say that you know in 2017 for all the people out there on social media bashing, you know, banks and so forth, you could do that all you want, but you don't really have intellectually. You don't actually have a leg because, in order for the the, the, the labor force, the actual network providers, as it were, uh, to to actually operate, they're fully dependent on being able to to cash in and out of of these uh, domestic fiat currencies, as it were. Uh, so I, I don't see that changing. And at the same time, though, these these, these entities uh, with large margins, the Bitfuries and Bitmains of the world, um, they're effectively just printing cash because they, they have really good uh, margins on both the energy side and the uh, manufacturing processes. It's, that's what they do, you know, build from from ground up to, to shipping these products. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't give investment advice, but I, I don't see why based on the current mania, why it would stop and why, why some of these guys, like the, these miners or the exchanges would effectively stop being able to print money. <laughs> That's, it's, 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 it's a good, uh, good revenue source, at least uh, the last year. <laughs> no, and I, I think there was a really interesting blog post that I saw and you and I went back and forth on this uh, previously from uh, Rusty Russell, who is um, a developer at a, a company called Blockstream, which is uh, a very well-funded company whose mission is essentially to kind of bring Bitcoin to mainstream and, and further develop Bitcoin uh, in the open source. So uh, what what Rusty said was essentially he, he views Bitcoin as having three economic eras. And I think you could extrapolate this into every cryptocurrency. He, he called the first one Bit, uh, Bitcoin's uh, Satoshi's free offer, which was basically the first five years of Bitcoin. Um, he characterized this as being essentially Bitcoin. Everybody talked about how um, when I first was getting into this, Bitcoin was really cheap. You could do, you could move money around the world. It'd be very quick uh, and cost you nearly nothing. So you had a proliferation of companies whose service model was built around lots of transactions going through the blockchain. 
Um, and then the second era, which is where he says we are now, he calls Satoshi's subsidy. Um, and he says, essentially, we're starting to see shifts in economic policies where transactions are more expensive, uh, but there still is money spewing out. As he said, um, these miners are able to print 12 and a half Bitcoins every 10 minutes. Um, that's going to eventually dry up. And he's pinned in about 2028, hopefully, uh, that we'll get into some area of self-sufficiency. What was really interesting, I think, inside of this is he talked about the types of businesses being transaction that right now are the ones fighting things and, and help pushing along either altcoins or they're pushing pushing along uh, Bitcoin cash as potentially solving that. But his, his view in this was essentially that's just kicking the can down the road. And eventually, if there's ever a lot of usage in a Litecoin or anything else, Ethereum, uh, th- those fees will really go up and, and you won't be able to have a lot of transactions. So my read across on that was really around um, this kind of ethos of holdle um, or, you know, I, I hold on to my Bitcoin because the price goes up. Um, is almost inevitable if these things um, ever take off and whether you can move them in things they call about uh, second layer technologies or level two. And you and I can debate all day and all night whether these things will ever come across. Uh, Lightning Network being kind of the, the most banded about one, uh, which is I think been in the in, in the pipeline for the last two years and it should be ready in the next two weeks is what I'm told every two weeks. Um, but, you know, uh, I, think, I think underneath this, there's a really interesting theme, which is, when we talk about cryptocurrencies, um, the, the notion that these things are cheap, that they're free, that they will be cash, um, personally, I find very hard to believe to be anything near credible if they ever get even the most faint amount of adoption. And when I mean that, I mean less than 1% of the population using it blows up um, Bitcoin's ability to operate in the way that it did when I first got into it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. So like, there's a massive seen and unseen set of issues going on here and, and the scene is obviously you see this this price rise and stuff like that but what you don't see is the other side of that which is you're effectively pricing out a portion of potential users uh, with a with an average fee of you know 10 plus dollars on on the bitcoin network in any given day at this stage you basically removed any of that cross-border remittance use case that everyone talked about in 2014 you had the andreas antonopoulos of the world that bash western union uh, for for charging certain fees, but there, there, there's a, a real cost structure that goes into you know, remittances, including compliance and so forth. But yeah, bottom line is uh, from a from a mining perspective alone, these 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 guys aren't operating on charity. They they run huge farms at, at times that require actual energy uh, at large scales and that requires installing transformers and having full-time electricians on, on hand in order to pull out uh, uh, power supply units and, and you can see you know there's lots of videos this is none of this stuff is secretive or anything like that um, although I guess some of the locations are, are fairly secret because you're basically <laughs> you're basically a minting press in the middle of you know rural China or you know somewhere in northern Russia or something like that um, but the the uh, uh, the, yeah, the unseen cost of this is if you have a twenty thousand dollar Bitcoin, um, in, in the long run, if that was ever stable, that'd be about thirteen billion dollars a year would be spent on on mining, uh, just that one coin alone, uh, and that's actually driven up the prices of DRAM. Um, it's uh, there was a presentation in early November um, by a chip designer um, who said that roughly five percent of all transistors now are being consumed by 
miners or the mining process. And obviously, as, as prices increase on any of these proof-of-work coins, the, the more resources we brought to bear. Because in order to – or because the seniorage, because people want to basically rent-seek on, on that extra bit of cash – uh, uh, between the cost of mining versus the value, the, the face value of that coin, um, they're going to bid that up to where the marginal cost equals the marginal value. We see that in, in throughout the commodities industry too. But bottom line, uh, I, I guess I use that phrase quite a bit, don't I? <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Rusty's thesis that uh, that's the way it had to be. That's certainly one way of going about it. Again, I'm not involved in you know, the block size debate since I take one side or the other, but uh, the 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 subsidization that's taking place uh uh where miners you know receive 90 plus percent of the revenue through uh the block reward versus transaction fees you know, all that's going to end up happening is as, as that transaction fee becomes more expensive people will as long as there's free entry people will create their own uh, alternative you know payment rails in this case you know bitcoin cash or any of this you know forks thereof uh in order to have cheaper at least in their view relatively cheaper uh, fees. Whether or not you know Rusty's vision or at least prediction uh, comes true, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very skeptical of the Lightning guys because they've literally been promising, as you pointed out, you know something in production every two weeks. And maybe maybe it's just really hard stuff that has to be solved. And to their credit, yes, it is. But uh, I think that they've gotten a lot of undeserved free press for something that actually doesn't exist yet. Yeah, and I, I think there the, there's certain segments of of the Bitcoin community, quote unquote, uh, that that give a lot of leeway to certain developers, certain figures in the community to to be able to really run these deadlines out, but at the same time are very quick to point out um, relatively minor failures in in others. So, I mean, politics is a massive part of this, and uh, I think having faith in the the people that you want to follow and believe uh, their thesis is another massive part, and and in my mind, partially describes uh, exactly why we've seen the price run up in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies uh, so much in 2017, and and we'll see if that continues in 2018. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess if there's any, uh, if there's a takeaway for 2018, it's it's uh, don't bother building entrepreneur. It's it's actually funny. uh, I know what we're we're closing up here. uh, I, I don't usually measure the uh, popularity of, of my own you know, tweets and stuff like that. But sadly enough, I think the most popular one I did this past year was a comment. I said, entrepreneurs at this moment, uh, something to the fact that entrepreneurs at this moment have realized that uh, it's, it's better to just buy and, and create coins rather than build real utility people want to eventually use uh, because, you know, that the, the market's rewarding those with, with, with this huddle, uh, <laughs> huddle mentality, mentality. Uh, and it's, it's unfortunate too because there's a lot of really clever, smart entrepreneurs doing some some really genuinely interesting things, but uh, they're not seeing the um, the liquidity or the uh, the capital coming to them because there is no coin involved. And again, I'm not anti coin or anti cryptocurrency. I think those things have a place, but uh, the mania certainly has created so much noise that legitimate entrepreneurs trying to build real, real utility are probably still going to struggle throughout 2018. Uh, ignoring even the ICO stuff, I think that, that if you're trying to build technology in this space, uh, as much as it would make sense to build applications uh, now on, on more mature platforms, the ones that hit 1.0 the past few months, um, it's still a struggle. If you have the tech talent yourself, why, why would you, you know, go for uh, you know, a few million dollars of revenue when you could 
go out and build some kind of altcoin and, and get you know tens of millions of dollars uh, conceivably if, if it gets listed on the secondary market. Again, I'm not endorsing that's what you need to do. I'm just saying that's that's that seems to be what uh, is the the opportunity cost that entrepreneurs and especially the CTO sides uh, ha- have to have to look at and weigh. So no, thanks thanks so much for for having me on the show, um, Colin. It's always great talking to you, and I uh, hope you guys all have a great holiday. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Great talking to you, and thanks for coming on here at Christmas time here. Um, so everybody should check out uh, Tim's blog of numbers dot com. Uh, Post Oak Labs, obviously your consulting uh, business. Uh, thanks, thanks for sharing all that information. Tons more. So uh, encourage everybody that's interested in knowing more to reach out to Tim. Uh, find you on Twitter, and of course, of numbers. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, and anything else people should be looking out for here in the the next coming weeks from you. Um, I will try to post very funny memes and gifs on, on social media for everyone's holiday uh, enjoyment. I would so expect nothing less. Thanks, uh, thanks again, Colin. Thank you. Talk to you later. All right. Thank you very much, Tim and Colin, for that interview. Next up, we have uh, Samuel Goyal from Adjoint talking about their platform for smart contracts. I'm here with Samuel Goyal, CEO of Adjoint. Thanks for coming on, Samuel. How are you doing? I'm good, Colin. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So, Adjoint, Samuel, who are you? What do you guys do? That's right. So, Adjoint is um, is a startup. Uh, we are about uh, 14, 15 months old now. We were formed in uh, in Boston, in uh, in the US. Although over the post course of the past year, we have moved a lot of a uh, lot of our team, a lot of our center of gravity uh, to the UK. That's something that we are in the process of doing. Um, we focus on smart contracts uh, for the financial enterprise. So we work with um, with enterprise clients. We work with startups uh, in the finance domain. So we work in uh, five key sub-verticals in finance, uh, banking, capital markets, insurance, asset management, and commodities trading. Um, and we help these companies or companies in these sectors um, create smart contracts for achieving uh, better efficiency, for achieving better compliance, uh, for targeting uh, new business models uh, and such like. Can I pick into a few things you just said there? Because I, I think there's a lot very interesting. But first, uh, be a bit tongue-in-cheek. Why, why are you guys moving to the UK? I mean, a lot of companies talk about um, starting up and moving to the US. You guys have gone the other way. What, what prompted that? That's right. So so as I said, you know, we, we focus on uh, five sub-verticals in finance, banking, um, capital markets, insurance, asset management, commodities. And if you look at it, uh, pretty much in all of these sub-verticals, um, London uh, is um, is a top two, top three location uh, for for our clients, really. Uh, any other city in the world, any other country that we would be in, um, we would uh, we would probably be able to talk to people in one or two sectors, but not all of them. So that's something that sort of increased the charm for London for us as a location. But that's it. You know, we, we continue to maintain our base in Boston. You know, we get access to a lot of people in the private banking, asset management and insurance sectors in Boston. Uh, Boston is very close to New York. So, so again, with the banking capital markets community in New York, that's something that we continue to to stay close to. And, and we will um, even 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 in the future. Uh, we're not moving wholesale uh, to London. 
uh, we've been participating in um, Digital Switzerland, um, a kickstart accelerator program uh, being run in public-private partnership in the last couple of months in Zurich. Um, we're getting some really good traction uh, out of that too. And we are very seriously considering um, setting up some form of a base in Switzerland too, uh, perhaps focusing on insurance, uh, private banking and such like. But yeah, to, 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 to your key point, the number one reason uh, which is sort of pulling us to London is the fact that in all, almost all of our clients' sub-verticals, um, we can actually be close to the top two, top three companies in, in all of them, really. Well, that's fantastic. I know um, for for a young startup as yourselves, uh, being able to be in those important places is, when you're dealing with these big companies is tricky. So bravo on getting that done, especially um, within financial services. That's a, that's a pretty diverse scope. Uh, let me hit into where you guys really see the future as it pertains to blockchains and how you're using blockchain or DLT technology in, in offering your products. Uh, right. So, uh, so I'll mention a little bit about my background and, and, and why out of my background, I sort of see the value of, of distributed ledgers and smart contracts. So I worked um, in, in, in financial services for most of my career. I worked for Deutsche Bank uh, in foreign exchange, in bonds, uh, in treasury, cash management, in OTC derivatives, uh, listed derivatives and commodities. Um, and we saw a lot of use cases, which were really around, um, or, or we, we kind of tackled a lot of challenges, which are really around, you know, improving straight through processing, improving the efficiency of our processes, not doing the same thing twice or thrice, uh, not having to reconcile internally or or with our clients. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these problems is something that blockchain sort of allows us to tackle. You know, we can move to a situation where. You know, we do not kind of um, have all our data sets and all our processing as a bank, for example, inside our building, have our clients run a similar set of operations and systems inside their buildings and, and cross-checking with each other, you know, every every day, every every week, end of every month and so on to see, well, this is, we've got X, do you have X? And of course, two times out of 100, it will not match. And that kicks off a whole amount of, uh, you know, whole amount of, um, of, of, of error processing and things like that. These are the kind of things that um, that classically distributed ledger or blockchain technology allows us to uh, to avoid. Uh, and we've got an offer in that regard. So we have open sourced our distributed ledger um, platform. It's called Uplink. It was it was open sourced about three uh, three and a half weeks ago um, to 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 some really good traction initially. But over and above that, what we are also building is um, is a layer that allows enterprises. Um, and, um, and and startups to model finance processes and financial products as smart contracts. And that allows them not only to take the benefit of sort of hyper automation, but also offer new innovative products in the market and, and ultimately going for uh, a revenue increase type of business case. So those are the two things that we're really focusing on, sort of efficiency and compliance through better processing and, um, and, and, and new revenue through, through design of new products through smart contracts. So this is really interesting. So you built a platform which is open source Uplink, um, which is a blockchain or distributed ledger platform. And you're offering um, a secondary product, which is also a platform which helps companies model financial agreements. Um, so my question would be on the first one, why have you chosen to, to open source um, the blockchain aspect of it I know a lot of companies out there are building these and selling them, or a lot of them maybe have built them uh, using other technologies or um, things like Hyperledger. 
Why have you decided to build one and give it up for free? Yeah. So let me talk about these two parts, really. Um, why open source? Um, I think the answer to that is pretty straightforward. You know, in the technology domain, and this is not just information technology, but, you know, a lot of uh, peripherals and, and hardware technology, what we have seen is, uh, you know, over and over again in the last 30, uh, 40 years, uh, you know, the more the more successful platforms, the more successful approaches are the ones that create a network. Um, and, and, we, and we basically believe that by open sourcing, we, we are in a situation where we can create a network of users much faster um, and much more, much more actively than trying to license. So, so that's that's the main reason for open sourcing. Um, now, why did we choose to build uh, a distributed ledger uh, technology? Actually, in, initially, Adjoint's plan was not to build one. So our goal really was to create a smart contract platform, which could be DLT agnostic. Um, and, and that was that was one of some of the first implementation uh, that Adjoint uh, did as a company. But what we came up against, and this was towards the end of last calendar year, early part of this one, what we came up against were you know a number of issues around how some of these sort of readily available um, distributed ledger technologies treated smart contracts. You know, it's it sort of, I would boil it down to one one simple thing, that especially if you look at the financial sector, we're not looking for smart contract languages to do kind of arbitrary computation. You know, I always use the analogy, we don't want to write programs that can play chess on, on smart contracts. We want to write... Uh, programs or smart contracts that'll do pretty mundane financial things like, you know, writing an insurance contract or writing a swap contract or, or something like that. So what we really needed was, uh, you know, a limited purpose, uh, you know, in technical terms, during incomplete um, language to write these smart contracts. Uh, most of the most of the commonly available distributed ledger platforms did not offer it. Uh, so therefore, we sort of said, well, to to express the full power in terms of safety, security, scalability, and fit to the financial use cases, to exp- to express the full power of our smart contract platform, um, you know, we had to first write a distributed ledger platform, which we did, and we open sourced it. But Still, overall, long term, we would like to get to the stage where our smart contract platform can interoperate, can interoperate, can work with um, with a number of other distributed ledger platforms. As of today, we can talk about integration methods and things like that. And hopefully in future, uh, it would be a much closer form of interoperation as well. So if I can kind of break that down to make sure that I understand, because sorry, I'm a bit slow on these things. So um, something like Ethereum has a... a language inside of it that's like a computer programming language you can build anything you want as you said chess um obviously we were talked about it um on the show um there have been several hacks within ethereum going back to 2016 with the the dao the dao um and more recently with parodies hacks plural um where because they're using a computer programming language somebody found something that wasn't expected um, and basically exploited that, meaning they, they found a hole in a contract and they used that to break the contract or make money out of it. And the other end of the spectrum is is Bitcoin, which has a what's known as a scripting language, which means you can only do about four or five things with Bitcoin. So think like a calculator, it's only got so many buttons and you can only do so many things with it. So you can add, subtract, multiply, divide. You guys are looking at going somewhere in between, but more like that Bitcoin type example where um, I can do something like, let's say, write a call option or an option where if the price of something goes up at some point in the future, I make money out of it. If it goes down, I only lose the initial um, premium or investment I put into it, but no more. 
that that's kind of the route you guys are trying to take with your your platform so yes you're right i mean the bitcoin scripting language is turing incomplete and the approach that we are taking is also um is also similar uh, but there are a couple of differences too uh, so one of the things is that uplink by by its very by its very design from ground up is um is a multi-asset ledger. So it does not have the concept of a cryptocurrency, which is, again, another difference to, to say, something like Ethereum. Uh, so yes, it's, it's, it is about using a programming language that allows a limited set of, um, of functions, which, which is sufficient to describe financial contracts and nothing else, and, um, and working on a multi-asset ledger without the use of cryptocurrencies, if that, um, if that makes it clearer. That, that makes a lot of sense. Can I take us into kind of a different area here. Um, you guys told me that you were doing a project uh, before the show with ISDA, so the International Swaps Dealer Association. Why are you doing that and what does this organization do? So ISDA, just as a background information, is the premium swaps and derivatives uh, association in the world. Uh, it's got, I think, just under a thousand members, 800 or 900, I'm not sure exactly. Um, I mean, that includes banks, that includes asset managers, that also includes people who are not traders of derivatives themselves, but provide services in the derivatives market. So so law companies, uh, accounting companies. And ISDA recently opened a category for companies such as ours who are offering sort of emerging technology to help improve the efficiency, control, compliance, etc. in the swaps uh, and derivatives market. So, so it's it's under that category that we decided to become a member of ISDA. Um, ISDA itself has got an initiative called the Common Domain Model, and what they're trying to do is is kind of uh, you know for those for those of us who are familiar with the derivatives market, when I say that I've got a derivative with a particular counterparty, a particular bank or something, what I really have is is a whole bunch of documents, legal documents, which are all signed God knows how many years ago, sort of master agreements and annexes and so on, which are kept in PDF. What I also have is is a short description of the trade that's typically seven or eight attributes long, which kind of describes, you know, under what terms, who will owe money to who. And then I've got about eight or ten different versions of the trade, which are operational versions that I use for legal confirmation, that I use for settlements, that I use for collateral, that I use for uh, regulatory reporting, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and obviously, as you can imagine, if I've got if, if if a simple trade has got like six or seven or even ten different manifestations, a they don't really agree with each other always, you know, because they're being done by different people at different time, and b they're just too many, you know. Just keeping ten records is more difficult in many different forms is more difficult than keeping one record. So what ISDA is trying to do is to develop what they're calling the common domain model which will hopefully span all of these domains, you know, from legal to risk and trading to, to post-trade operations. Uh, and, you know, we absolutely want to, to contribute to that thinking because that's what the concept of smart contract is, that you, when, you, when you trade something or when you, when you transact, or when, you, when you sign a contract with the insurance company, then everything that, that will happen as a result of that contract is kept in that one place. So whatever cash is due, you know, whatever documents are due, whatever external reporting has to be done, you know, whatever whatever cross-checking has to be done as a matter of operational sanity, housekeeping, etc. All of that is all those rights and obligations are kept in one place. And those rights and obligations evolve because the market price changes or, or, or whatever, then that that evolves in the same place. So that's the concept of smart contracts. Uh, and therefore we saw a very, very good fit with ISDA's common domain model. 
Um, and therefore, we said, okay, we'll join ISTA and we'll contribute to the development of common domain model. That'll be good for us commercially. Uh, that'll be good for us in terms of enhancing and expanding our product to make it more suitable for the derivatives industry. And I think it'll be good for the market. So, so that, was, that was an absolutely good fit for us to join ISTA. Well, that's fantastic. And it's great to know that ISTA has something out there that's open to, to fintech companies and innovative companies. When we're on kind of that that topic, I'd like to know kind of there's some very big, well-known companies out there that our listeners probably have heard of, um, R3, Digital Asset Holdings, Exoni, amongst others. How do you guys kind of fit next to them when you talk to your clients or talk to your potential investors? So, so, so you're right. I mean, there are multiple service providers in the same domain uh, focused on the financial services industry, the examples that you mentioned, using distributed ledgers and in some cases, smart contracts. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of things which I would say. One is, um, you know, the, the, the medium term trend that I see is, um, and, you know, a lot of our potential investors and partners see, is that um, the distributed ledger economy will grow. So as of today, how many derivatives are done as smart contracts? You know, the answer is probably, you know, less than one and greater than zero, you know, something like that. Um, and, and in future, how many derivatives will be done as smart contract? Well, the answer will definitely be a larger number, you know, on the back of things that ISDA is doing. As of today, how many insurance contracts are done as smart contracts? You know, it's a modest number. It's a small number, uh, but it's nothing as compared to the overall insurance market in the world. And in future, that's going to grow. So, so, so basically, as I see it, the distributed ledger and smart contract economy will grow. And, um, you know, multiple solutions, they will have different features. They will, you know, they, 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 they will be more suited to a particular market or a sub-vertical or less suited. You know, multiple features will compete. And, and ultimately, they will be place for more than one company you know that is that is something that uh, that i'm fully convinced about so so the way i look at it is um, that we are all collaborating in some way you know we're all working together even if we're not sort of meeting and talking about it we're all collaborating in creating a larger distributed ledger economy and then we will we will all uh, compete and and gain our market share out of that distributed ledger economy the biggest competition for us is not uh, another distributed ledger company the biggest competition is the classical centralized ledger way of doing things, which is what, you know, is used 99.99% of the time, so even even higher than that. Uh, I mean, does that make sense? I mean, is that is that sort of sensible? For that makes a lot of sense. Having having paper as your enemy is, is a very good enemy. Just watch out for the paper cuts. That's right. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, last question. How do people find out more about join? How do they get in touch with you? Yeah, so, so so the best place is is to go via our website at john.io. So I'll spell it out, A-D-J-O-I-N-T dot I-O. Uh, you would you would have access to you know the the, the white papers the the documents that we are doing describing uh, our conception our thinking around distributed ledger and smart contracts. You can download um, the open source version of our uplink distributed ledger. You can uh, you can look at our product documentation as well as uh, what is the work that we are doing around industries. You know we we. We're thinking of launching, I mean, this is something that we're still developing. We're thinking of launching sub-vertical, sort of the five sub-verticals that I said, banking, capital markets, insurance, asset management, and commodities, you know, sub-vertical specific um, centers of excellence. So, so, you know, all of that uh, we would really put out um, via website. So, so that, that's the best way. You'd also find my contact details on the website. So, so for more specific questions for your listeners, um, absolutely get in touch via the website. That's probably the best way. Great. Thank you very much. So, Neil, you have a great day and thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks, Colin. Good to speak to you. 
Fantastic. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this interview special episode of Blockchain Insider. We hope you have had far too much festive food uh, of all kinds of varieties. And we hope that if you want uh, to learn any more about who we are and what we do, uh, you can reach out to us at Beachin Insider on Twitter. We'll be back with a regular show next week. And until then, goodbye.